This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Spencer Chase. Our guest this week is Kip Tom, United States Representative to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ambassador Kip Tom next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Kip Tom spent his life in production agriculture and agribusiness in his native Indiana before being confirmed by the Senate to head up the American FAO efforts last year. He says American producers should have a keen eye on the work of the FAO and the agriculture needs of the developing world. But he says there also needs to be greater buy-in from some of the other countries involved in the International Hunger Fighting Agency. Probably the biggest surprise that I've noticed is the lack of engagement by other member states in, in bringing policy along the way to uh, actually help people around the developing world uh, learn to feed themselves. And when I say that, I say that in a context of modern innovations that like we've had an advantage to use here in the United States. Uh, we're essentially blocked in a lot of other countries around the world, for instance, in the continent of Africa. All but four countries embrace biotech. The rest of them are being blocked. we got an end game running around us that stops uh, biotech policy from being enforced or letting us bring biotech in. And a lot of times they even go as far as no chemistry, no fertilizer as well. So as we look across the continent of Africa, we know that they're doubling their population in the next 30 years. We know that they have significant climate challenges. They have significant education or knowledge challenges. And understanding how to feed themselves, this is where we really want to find the way to make sure that we're the advocates, helping them understand that there's all innovations can be used here. So oftentimes, out of Rome and out of the FAO, we only talk about one form of agriculture, and that's agroecology. And we want to see where we have agroecology that allows modern innovations to come in. Because right now, agroecology has been framed up primarily by the EU. France, Switzerland, uh, Germany, taking it in a direction that really is not going to let us allow us to feed that growing population. So we've got a lot of engagement. Uh, obviously, we've got 194 countries in FAO. Uh, there's a significant amount of diplomacy that takes place in an environment like that, uh, but it's meaningful engagement. It's an engagement we feel that we're really, really going to drive some progress, and I feel that there's hope. And we're starting to see some progress, some more countries opening up. They're saying, yeah, the systems we've been using here for the last 5, 10 years, systems that my grandfather gave up on 125 years ago, are not working for us. And if we're really going to deal with climate, if we're going to deal with uh, the locust problem like they have right now, if they're going to deal with fall armyworm, if they're going to deal with uh, uh, the need of growing their food supply to feed a doubling their population, they got to bring technology along the way. And that's, that's probably the biggest challenge we face. 
What's the simplest way you can describe the FAO in terms of a uh, oversight body, in terms of a governing body, in terms of just a, uh, a an advocacy body? What's the simplest way you can explain the work of the FAO to the American producer? Well, they're, they're actually a technical body in the sense of FAO itself. When you look at programs and everything they do there, but the reality is there's another body within side of FAO, and that's co- called Codex Almateris. It's where we set the standards on residual levels of, of maybe some products that's left in some of our food products or agricultural pro- other agricultural products. So Codex, to me, is probably the most important component of, of, of FOW and what we do there, making sure that uh, the U.S. producer has access on a free and, and working platform as far as trade around the world. You touched on it earlier, but obviously one of the biggest conversations around the world right now when it comes to feeding a growing world is the use of biotechnology. What can FAO do to improve the acceptance of biotechnology, or do you not see that as, as that body's role? Well, the, the biggest thing we can see in, in, in the context of biotechnology, I want to I want to open this up more. A lot of times we only tend to focus on biotechnology, but let's face it, it's going to be much deeper than that. It's We're talking about innovations that are going to be developed in the next five to ten years, so we're more about trying to see a policy framework established and where we can have advocacy take place in a meaningful manner across these developing nations to really help them try to themselves because what we're finding out is a lot of times we get blocked we have no access to it we see the foul of the past uh, the foul under Graziano was actually one that was steering away going further away from the use of modern innovations on farms so uh, we see that's turned around a little bit under director Chu we feel that he's been uh, more of an advocate for biotech modern farming systems because he sees the need and he understands if we're really, truly going to have a positive impact on nature, have a positive impact on uh, making people's lives better, allowing them to be- get a better education, grow their communities, their economy, we're going to have to bring along these innovations to make that happen, as well as giving them a good diet and good nutrition. In your conversations with stakeholders from around the world, how do you assess the receptivity to biotechnology and some of the other innovations that you've just discussed? Well, it it doesn't come easily. Uh, I can tell you that uh, we can work with New Zealand, Australia, uh, sometimes the United Kingdom, Canada, Argentina, and Brazil. Those countries are very open, Uh, a number of them in Central America as well, open to biotech and understanding they can really make a difference. Uh, But where we run into our most resistance is the European Union. Uh, Their influence and their impact that they heavily fund, uh, they are probably our biggest resistance in bringing modern innovations to being a tool, a solution for that smallholder farmer. As we look at the issues that we're facing with the European Union, a lot of those are not uh, recent or, or emerging challenges. Is there any sign of leeway or give in some of the roadblocks that we're seeing in countries that are maybe opposed to some of the technologies used here in the U.S.? Yeah, so that that's there, there's trade issues on that, right? Trade implications, and uh, it seems like the EU is not weakening their position. Uh, but I've got all the faith in the world on our U.S. trade representatives that are here based in Washington, D.C. USTR seems to have some effective uh, means to get things done, and I know that they're going through a lot of negotiations with the EU at this point in time. So I can't elaborate on that a whole lot, but uh, appreciate their efforts. And uh, I think if anything, anyone can get something done at the USTR, making sure that they can have an impact on making sure American farm goods find their way to the global marketplace. There's a lot of talk about farmers working to feed the world and feeding a growing population. And you and I have both heard uh, a number of times the 9 or 10 billion people that we're going to have by 2050. 
What do you see as the role of the FAO in the world hunger conversation? Well, when I, again, it comes back to where we start out. It's, it's helping these 500 million smallholder farmers around the world have the tools, make sure they have the innovation so they too can provide the food stuff, the energy, the fiber that they need to, to grow their economy, get a better life. Uh, and, and put shelter over their head and give back to their community and their education. So FAO needs to help us in, in, in that policy around the world. They need to help us with making sure that uh, these farmers have the tools that they need to elevate themselves out of that cycle of uh, subsistence farming, of poverty, and uh, make sure that they have the opportunities that the rest of us do in the world as well. In your conversations about improving the, the current standing of those smallholder farmers, obviously looking to use technologies that have been in place in the United States for quite some time. But as exports grow in the United States, is the American producer a case study or a competitor for some of these smallholder farmers? I think we're a case study. I don't think we're going to be a competitor. I think, you know, if we can see, for instance, if we look at the continent of Africa and we can improve livelihoods down there, we can improve that smallholder's uh, ability to generate revenues and everything, we're going to see more trade for the United States across the continent of Africa, let alone the infrastructure improvements that will take place, the building of new new businesses that can come in. There's all kinds of great opportunities for the United States and Africa if we see them successful. So uh, I hope the American producer understands uh, Africa's success is our success as well. But in the meantime, as, as they look to build up that agricultural infrastructure in some of these countries, what do you see as the American producer's role in fighting world hunger? Well, anything we can do to help showcase uh, what we've done with American agriculture, how we, we protect nature, we improve the environment, we are actually sinking more carbon than we've ever used to. You know, we know that there's a trillion tons of carbon in the atmosphere, and I think agriculture is the solution for bringing some of those carbon levels down. I think you look at our productivity gains. I think if we can showcase what the American farmer has done and the industry has done, I think we can really help um, those in the developing countries learn how to feed themselves. I think what's so important is, is this, is, is we look at innovation and we look at the access the American producer has to it today. We know one thing for certain, if we use that innovation, it can help us succeed. If we choose not to use it, and let's say, for instance, we fail, it's an economic loss to us. But when I look across the continent of Africa, and I look at, because they don't have the access to innovations, they fail, it, it, the consequences are much different. And different in the sense that these people end up giving up hope because they can't feed themselves, they migrate, they get involved in extremism, they're a victim of human trafficking, and uh, the consequences are significant to the point that it could be the loss of human life. And that's the issues I have with not having the access to innovation across the continent of Africa. So it's not only their own peace and security that's at risk, it's our allies and the United States of America's risk too in terms of peace and security. So I view this role as one that is really focused on achieving our own national security and our allies around the world. The Department of Agriculture in the United States recently rolled out a, a new innovation agenda with which it plans to uh, cut the environmental footprint of American agriculture in half by 2050. What environmental impacts do you think will need to be assessed within the continent of Africa as smallholder farmers look to become more efficient? Are there sustainability improvements that could be made along the way as that production increases as well? 
Well, absolutely. Let's say this. We, we can learn from our, our mistakes in this country. Uh, we, we've had a great learning curve since 1900 with the industrialization of uh, our country and where we moved. We went along those benchmark times where we got mechanization of agriculture. We had hybrid corn come along. We had the green revolution. Now we have the data and information technologies revolution taking place. There was learnings that went along with that in our own nation. And I think if we can take some of those places and help them across the continent of Africa, learn from where we made mistakes and learn where we have success today, I think we can help them feed themselves. We've talked a lot about Africa and, and the potential improvements that could be made there. Where else on the globe do you see as, as potential target areas for FAO? Well, there's no question we can quickly go to Central America. We can see there's many opportunities in Central America um, that we're, we're working with every day with FAO and the World Food Program. We can go into a number of countries in uh, South America as well. We understand the, the burden right now that there is on Colombia with nearly 4.5 million people have migrated out of Venezuela and are now called Colombia home. And now they've had to increase their ability to improve their food infrastructure as well. So there's lots of challenges everywhere in the world. If we uh, we look at Central America, South America. Obviously, we go up into the Middle East. There's opportunities there where we're, we're starting to drive some impact there. And then we go into Southeast Asia. So those are the main areas that we see that can really drive some impact to improve food security. It seems like there's been a lot of progress made in the fight against hunger, and yet it persists in a lot of parts of the world. Given all of the, the factors that go into play there, whether it's agricultural production, geopolitics, weather, a lot of different things at play, is hunger a conquerable issue? Hunger is a conquerable issue. Uh, I'll say this, you know, the, the reason we, we see growth in our numbers this last year, the SOFI report came out with 820 million people uh, significantly malnourished. Uh, we know that this, that it, today about two-thirds of the place where we're involved at the World Food Program, which is nearly an $8 billion a year budget, that two-thirds of that comes from civil conflict, man-made conflict, avoidable, completely avoidable. But some of this starts with having countries that are food insecure. The conflict starts there. So if there's anything we can do in shoring up and making sure FAO is an effective and efficient organization, and it's really driving making sure that smallholders around the world have the ability to feed themselves, hopefully we can avoid some of these civil conflicts that arise. In looking at what uh, what some of these different producers might need to, to become more self-sufficient and become more sustainable, where do you see as, as some of the biggest research gaps? In, in, in current agricultural systems in those countries. Yeah, so th there's a lot of people involved in, in trying to come up with solutions for, for Africa, and, but they've actually been blocked. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, we, we, can, we have people that are in a seed breeding business that have the genetics, have the biotech uh, solutions in certain areas that are ready to go into Africa, but uh, every time they get close and they think that there's going to be some public policy shaped up to where they can go drive impact, they get blocked from, from getting it in. But uh, same goes with uh, the knowledge gaps we have. Um, we're trying to do something right now working, trying to get cell phones in everybody's hands, try to create broadband across a vast expanse of Africa because we believe with the 500 million smallholder farmers they can't have an extension agent in every county like we had in the United States in, during the early years of my life. Uh, so down there it's going to be much different. So one of the things we're trying to do is shore up the knowledge base of that smallholder farmer. If they can have a phone, create apps, and we're working with some people in San Francisco right now to do some of this, create apps that can actually transfer knowledge from a central resource that's reliable 
and get it out to that smallholder farmer so they can effectively understand how to improve their productivity on their farm, but maybe also gain access to certain markets that they didn't have access to before. So communications is a, a big, uh, big challenge for us, but we think uh, with some of the partners and people we've talked to that we'll, we'll accomplish that goal. You touched on something there that was going to be my next question, because if all if all goes well and these producers are able to grow enough to sustain themselves and, and more, they're eventually going to be looking for a market to, to sell their excess. What Where do we stand on making sure that those producers have that market and have that ability to slowly build, uh, build profit and build their financial standing? Well, it, it all starts with the consumer demand down there. And obviously, you know, uh, people are wanting to improve their diets. And I think there's a constant shift across the continent of Africa of what they're growing. I mean, they've been, obviously, you know, you see a lot of rice in a diet. You see a lot of cornmeal, soybean meal. You see a lot of other uh, uh, products, some uh, African orphan crops are starting to become more popular again. And this is where we see, see some of the CRISPR technologies coming in that can add nutritional value, add something that takes that orphan crop that's produced in a certain area that's maybe localized for that area that's adapted to it very well that can actually feed those people. So those are the markets we're seeing developed. And we think having the interconnectivity with cell phones and and other means will help these people find their marketing and keep that alive. You know, we've got a number of projects we're working on in Africa right now where we're, we're working with private sector industry groups trying to create a coordinated supply chain all the way from the beginning to the end, create co-ops and bringing in nearly 350 producers in this one that we're working with right now and bringing in, like I said, the private sector to help create this. And I think if we can showcase some of those models and we can replicate that in other areas around Africa, I think we're going to have a significant impact on affecting food security. As you look around at all the various different things that FAO is, is working on, what can you tell me about the biggest hurdle you expect FAO to clear in the next 12 months? Well, I'm, I'm going to start out by saying this. So, you know, when we look at what we do in Rome, we're running the second largest budget for international organizations for the United States uh, next to NATO. And, and we look at where our demands for our U.S. budget, and today most of it is going into the World Food Program. Uh, under President Trump, we, we went from uh, about uh, $1.7 billion to now we're at $3.39 billion into the World Food Program. I'm not sure we can sustain that kind of growth. So we have to make sure that we reach the nexus of aid and get more into development and make sure that we can get these countries to the point to where they can feed themselves. So uh, FAO's biggest goal is for us, and what we're driving with Director Chu, uh, is to make sure that they have the tools and a technical knowledge that's unbiased, it's, that's supportive of all innovations, and has the ability to feed people. Is there room for a greater partnership from allied countries? Um, I, I'm saying yes, there, there is. A, you know, there, there's a number of them that, that don't seem to be very interested in aligning with us on a lot of this, and it's mainly the EU. I'll be very straight up with you on that. But uh, the ones, the five eyes are very supportive, you know, New Zealand, Australia, uh, the UK, Canada, United States, we seem to get along pretty good in driving a lot of policy, and we look for that to continue. So obviously you were an American producer yourself before you joined the FAO in this capacity. What does the American producer need to know about FAO? 
Well, I think the American producer needs to think of FAO in the light of it's like an international United States Department of Agriculture, basically, and their impact uh, influencing systems and the ability for people to feed themselves is substantial. And as I mentioned earlier, Codex Alimentarius is probably one of the most important elements of FAO. We need to make sure that that sound science remains intact and make sure that the American producer has access to conduct the trade and, and grow not only our economy, but allow others around the world to embrace and innovation, uh, have the ability to feed that hungry world. But we have got to get to the point where we make this transition from aid more over to the development side, make sure that these smallholders have economic opportunities, make sure that they don't lose hope. Because when they lose hope, it's much different than the United States. It's economic, as I said, the consequences for us. For them, it causes migration. It causes, you know, joining extremism, being a victim of uh, human trafficking, and many other illicit activities. And so let's give them hope. Let's give them the ability to feed themselves. Let, let them grow their economies and have better diets. And the whole world will be more peaceful and more secure. And our own national security will be much better as well. Ambassador Kip Tom, we certainly want to thank you for joining us here on AgriPulse Open Mic. As is tradition with this program, it is an open mic, and you have the last word. <laughs> last word. Well, thanks for this opportunity. And uh, I'll ask the American producer, those involved in American agriculture and food supply chains and all the way the consumer is, let's make sure we just don't focus on what goes on inside the borders of the United States. Let's focus on, on what goes on around the world uh, the U.S. is 4.5% of the world's population. Uh, what goes on around the rest of the world will have a significant impact on the United States and our own peace and security. So um, stay tuned and, and pay attention to what goes on in, in Rome and these food-based agencies. Our thanks to Ambassador Kip Tom, our guest this week on Open Mic. You can hear more from Tom at the upcoming AgriPulse Ag and Food Policy Summit March 23rd at the National Press Club in Washington. For more information, visit agripulse.com. Agripulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For Agripulse, I'm Spencer Chase.